Our reading this morning is from John 15, 9 through 17. Uh, an introductory idea first before we get to that, though. Around 850 B.C., about the same time as the prophet Elijah, but hundreds of miles away, in the country of Greece, the, the poet Homer was busy taking down and writing this epic poem called the Iliad. Beautiful poem full of... Um, all sorts of Greek tragedy like revenge and blood and honor and fate. And in that poem, we have um, the two main characters, perhaps, Agamemnon, the king of Mycenae, who's attacking the city of Troy over um, an abduction. And a lot of the Iliad has to do with Agamemnon's attempts to enlist Achilles into the war. And Achilles was sort of like a super weapon. He was practically invincible. There was one part of his body at his feet that was, that was susceptible to attack, but for the rest of him, he was impervious to attack. And over and over again, Achilles refuses to enter into this war with Agamemnon. He's angry at Agamemnon for various things. He's not interested in this war. It's not his war. Until, at one point, Achilles' best friend named Patroclus is killed by Hector, who's the son of the king of Troy. And from that point on, Achilles does enter the war to avenge the death of his friend. He goes and he kills Hector, but Patroclus remains unburied, and so Patroclus appears to Achilles in a dream. And in that dream, he speaks to Achilles and he says, I haven't been buried yet, which is why I'm sort of floating around here as a ghost. And Patroclus goes on to predict that Achilles himself will die. And then he asks Achilles, because of our friendship, our closeness in this life, would it be possible for us to be buried together in the same Greek urn? And this was the predominant, one of the predominant views of what friendship looked like in Greek culture. People would if people talked about friendship, they'd say, like the friendship between Achilles and Patroclus. 500 years later, Alexander the Great modeled his best friendship with a, one of his generals named Hephaestion. He modeled his friendship after that friendship in the Iliad. And often he and his friend Hephaestion would say, Achille, uh, Alexander is like Achilles and Hephaestion is like Patroclus. That's the deepest level of friendship. But remember that that friendship was, the premise of that friendship was a friend, a true friend, is one who will avenge the death of his friend. That was the definition of friendship. Today's passage is about friendship. And as you'll see, uh, and as you listen, you'll hear Jesus redefine friendship in a very countercultural way, in a very radical way. And we find that in John 15, 9 through 17. Let's read. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's command and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. 
You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to imagine that you go into a giant library, a very stately library full of ivory and beautiful wood shelves. And you wander around, as it's fun to do in library, looking at all the different things in there, the different books, until you come to the center of the library and there's a giant bookshelf, as grand as can be, with a great many books. And you notice that on either end of this big bookshelf are two giant books. They're so big, in fact, that they're holding all the books up in between them. And you notice that each book is a book of a command. There's a command in each one of those books. We'll get to what they are later. But as you scan then towards the middle of the bookshelf, you notice an even larger book, more grand than all the others. And in that, you open that book, you, you take it off the shelf, it's massive, and you open it up in front of you. And you find that it's a book about friendship, about what friendship looks like. And you start to read, and you start to take in all that is inside that book. What are the books at the other end? That's a good question. I'd like you to think about this giant bookshelf that hopefully you have in your mind as sort of an image of our passage today. Jesus has this beautiful bookshelf in front of us, and there's a bookend on either side. There's a command at either side. At the very beginning, in verse 9, there's a command. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. That's not the command yet. Here's the command. Now remain in my love. Another word that we'll often see in English translations is abide there. It's from the Greek word meno. It means to stay in one place, to absorb what's happening in that place. It means to be interconnected with the thing that you're remaining in. And Jesus talks often about remaining in love, remaining in the Father, remaining uh, within each other, within the community. To absorb and to be interconnected with that thing, but yet retain your own identity throughout it, but to be shaped and formed by it. Remain in my love is the first command. It's that big book on this side. At the other end of our passage is a different command, a different book. In verse 17, it says this, this is my command, love each other. Very different command. There's two commands in this passage, two quite different commands. You could look at them in, in very different ways. On one level, the command to remain is passive. There's nothing really to do there. It's just to stay there and to take it in. In fact, it's a passive verb. To remain is to be, a pa is to be passive. Whereas to go out and love each other, and there's other commands here that have to do with going out and bearing fruit and things like that, those are active. That's an active command. So there's a passive command in here, and there's, a, there's an active command in here. And Jesus gives them both. Why does he do this? Why in one passage two commands that are both passive and active? One way of understanding this is thinking about the culture in which Jesus said this. He was speaking to a Middle Eastern culture where people had two primary modes of interacting with their world. 
And for men, and this was different between men and women, for example. For men, the primary mode of interacting with their world was to just be, was to, in essence, sit around, sit around the table while somebody else brought them food, to, to, to talk, to listen, to react to what came towards them, to hold forth, to, to have counsels. Now, that wasn't their only mode. Sometimes it was necessary for them, if they wanted to feed their family, to then go out and work in the field or check after their farm, make sure everything was running, go and do some work and earn a living. But for men, the primary mode was to be, was being. It was different for women. For women, the primary mode of, of interacting with their world was doing, was being active. They were expected to bring food to the male members of their household. They were expected to have children and raise those children and watch them. They were expected to do chores around the house so that it was neat and tidy. Men would never do that work. Uh, the times have changed, and let's be happy about that. This is a good thing, right? Um, there's one example, and this was ingrained in the culture, that men were primarily beers and women were primarily doers in this culture. There's one example that maybe sums this up. Jesus goes and visits the house of Mary and Martha. One of them is a beer, and the other one is a doer. And one of them is being cultural, Martha, by when Jesus comes, she goes all around the house preparing a meal, making sure everything's right. She's doing. That's what she's expected to do. Mary is simply sitting at Jesus' feet and absorbing, abiding in what he has. Martha comes and complains to Jesus, tell my sister to get up and help me. Tell my sister to be a doer like I am. That's what's expected of us. But Jesus corrects Martha and says, your sister Mary has chosen the better portion. And, and by, by comparison, really, or by implication, Martha, you should be doing that too. You're, I'm only with you for a little while. You should be taking in. You should be being in this moment. Jesus gives these two commands of being and doing because in every person that he meets, there's some issue of balance about being and doing that's not in balance. And so he's, he gives the dual command as a corrective to whether you're being too much of a beer and a doer. So to, to men who are too much beers, he goes and tells them to do stuff. Go out. Go out into the harvest. Go out into the world. Go out and love one another. Go out and bear fruit that will last. Go do it. And he's speaking to men right here in this audience. He's speaking to his disciples. More about that later, but what we find in the middle of being and doing is friendship. It's in the middle of our passage. It's in between the bookended commands of being and doing is this command about friendship or this statement of friendship. Look at verse 13, and here's that new and radical definition of friendship that I talked about that would have st stood in opposition to that Greek view of friendship from the Iliad or from Alexander the Great. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. See how different that is? Friendship is not, I will avenge your death. Friendship is, I will die so you don't have to die. That's totally different, totally radical, totally new. And this is Jesus really being prophetic. Uh, it's kind of like the definition of love last week from 1 John chapter 4. This is love, not that we loved him, but that he first loved us and 
sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Love is laying down your life for your friends. Love is dying to save the world from its sins. Love is tied up in one particular event, the cross. Love is that moment in time where Jesus took the sins of the world on himself and freed us to be his friends. He goes on, you're my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. And here we have this unique friendship that Jesus offers. Um, the, the friendship that Jesus offers is at the same time an equal friendship, and, and it's also an unequal friendship. Friendship with God is complex. Friendship with God is, is somewhat like our friendships, but in other ways it's very unlike our friendship. So for the first part, this friendship with God is a friendship of equals, and Jesus says this to his disciples. An employee doesn't know what the plans of the employer are all the time. The employee doesn't know what the corporate strategy is on every level. They, an employee sometimes just has to go and do what they're told, like fly to Asia and talk to somebody in a factory there. I have a friend who has to do that. He doesn't know exactly all the reasons why he's there. He knows why he's there, but he's not privy to all the plans that are in the corporate boardroom. Jesus says that's not a friendship. That's an unequal relationship. You don't, the servant does not know what the master's business is. But he says, now we are in a friendship. And now you are partners with me in what God is doing in this world. And he goes on to make a really shocking claim. I think actually the most shocking claim in this whole passage. He says, everything that the father has told me, all the business that the father has seen fit to share with the son, I have shared with you. You are equal partners in this enterprise that we're in together. Now, I don't know. To me, that's good news, that we have everything through the disciples that God saw fit to tell Jesus, and Jesus saw fit to tell the disciples absolutely everything that he knew. And so I think when you open up your scriptures, you can be confident then that you have the full counsel of God. That was what... Paul said to the Ephesians when he spoke to them in Acts chapter 20, I've given you everything I've got. That's what Jesus is saying to the disciples, and I think by extension, that's what the disciples are saying to us. When they wrote all this down, they said, this is everything you need to be a partner with God in what he's doing in the world. And if you're his partner, you're his friend. You're equal with him. Now, one thing I think is hard to put my head around is this idea that I can be in an equal relationship with the Lord of the universe. I can be a partner with the one who spoke the cosmos into existence. How could I do that? And that's a paradox that we can't quite understand, that he's our equal and yet he's the creator of everything. Someday I think we'll experience it in heaven, exactly what it means. For now, I think we have to trust that it's a reality. But I think it's enough to say this, that in Christ... God is befriending the human race by becoming human himself. And that may be where this is going. We're equal with Jesus because we're human like Jesus. It's what we call the incarnation. It's the idea that God became human. He took on flesh so that he could dwell among us, so that we could see his glory, so that he could go to the cross for us in a meaningful way and be raised again. 
And if you think about it, the incarnation demands that Jesus should have friends. Why? Because to be human is to have friends. Friendship is one of those defining characteristics of being human. Other species have relationships that may look like friendship to us, but they're not friendship the way we have friendship. Our friendships are social, they're interactive. Our friendships allow us to sacrifice on behalf of somebody else. In the animal world, we don't see that. To be human is to have friends. And for Jesus to be truly human, he had to have friends. And he tells his disciples, you are my friends. And by extension, we are his friends. We are all the friends of Jesus Christ. That's friendship with equality. But there's also an unequal kind of relationship in this friendship. And he says it right here. Um, there's a command tied up in Jesus' friendship. He says, you're my friends, but that means that you have to do what I say. Uh, being friends with Jesus, is, as equal as it is, also gives us some marching orders. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command, verse 14. Uh, and he, there's a lot of commands in this passage. The first one was to abide in verse uh, 9, but then in verse 10, 12, 14, 16, 17, all contain commands to love each other, to bear fruit, to do things, all active things. And we see that love is a commandment. The friendship that Jesus has for us and the love that he has for us is a commandment. It's a decision on our part to respond to it. It's not an emotion. It's not a feeling that no matter what we call love in our popular culture, love, at least as the Bible talks about it, is not that sentimental stuff. It's not a romance movie. It's a decision to lay down your life for somebody. It's a decision to love them more than yourself. Um, and that's how it was for God. His love for us was that he sent his son into the world as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That didn't just happen. That didn't happen for no reason. That was a decision that God consciously made to send his son, and it was a decision that God's son consciously accepted and took that cup. And so it was a decision on God's part through and through. He's calling us when he says that we are to love him and to love each other. That is a decision on our part. It's something that we do. But it's a decision that grows out of that big book in the middle. It's a decision that grows out of friendship with God. There's another radical inequality in this friendship, and it's about who chooses who. If you think about your, some of your friends in your life, or maybe even your spouse, it's kind of fun to ask, well, who, who chose who? Who pursued who in the first place, you know? Um, and I had a best friend in high school, and I can honestly say, we both say that he was more interested in the friendship at the beginning than I was. So on, on some level, Jim, my best friend in high school, chose me. I warmed up to that friendship later on, and before long, it was very mutual. That's what Jesus says about this relationship, too. It's unequal in, in who started it. He says, you did not choose me. I chose you. And it's very much like we saw again last week. It's interesting how these texts are always so interconnected with each other, where God said uh, that this is love. 
Not that you love God, but that God loved you first. God is the first mover. God is the initiator in love and in friendship. Jesus started this friendship with the apostles, with the disciples there in the room with him. But then they began to reciprocate. It means that God takes the initiative in friendships, but then expects a response in return to follow his commandments. One other thing that it means is that we're not consumers when it comes to God. We're not consumers when, we, when it comes to Jesus. We're not sitting in a lounge chair with a channel changer, changing the channel, hoping for a different God or a different Jesus. Although some people are trying to offer channels like that. No, the channel chooses us. The channel comes into our lives and says, this is what you're watching. This is who you have. All of this comes out of Jesus calling his disciples friends, and it's that place of balance between doing and being. Think about this. How does friendship form? What makes a friendship happen? What sustains a friendship in your life? We asked the adult forum class about this a little bit, and it was spending time together, having history together, moments of significant interaction where you, you build a relationship and a history that you can draw upon. And it has to do with doing things together, being active together, having something that you do at the same time. Friendship is both being and it's also doing. And with God, it's wrapped up in both. And both of these commandments, to be, to abide in his love, and to do, to go out and love each other and to bear fruit, they are all summed up in friendship with Christ. That's what's in the middle. And that's the balance that Jesus is calling us to. Remember I said we talk about this a little bit later. Jesus is using these two commandments to try to bring balance to the people around him because there was a lack of balance, and there is a lack of balance in all of us. And I think I need to ask myself some questions when it comes to balance in my life over the question of being and doing. So I'm gonna ask myself a few questions. Do I need to abide more in his love? Do I need to just be with him? And I might ask myself these questions. Is it okay for me not to do something? for a season? Is that okay? And I might say, well, if I don't do it, nobody will do it, and it has to get done. Then I could ask myself the question, would it be the end of the world if it didn't get done, whatever it is? Would the world absolutely come to a stop? Would it stop rotating on its axis if that thing didn't get done? Probably not. And if it's important enough to somebody else, God may put it on their heart to be a doer there and do it so that I can be a beer here for this season. And God wants me to remain in him because he's my friend. He wants our friendship to grow because we're, I am being with him. I am abiding with him. On the other hand, I may need to ask myself these questions, especially if I'm a lazy bones, right? Do I need to do more? Do I need to love more? Do I need to bear more fruit, fruit that will last, as Jesus says? And maybe it's time for me to get busy with the Lord's work. Now, 
I'm going to tell you a bunch of reasons why I should not do that, okay? Because this is important, because the law can be really powerful if we don't contain it in understanding why we respond. I should not do it if I feel guilty or if I feel obligated by anyone else besides God. I should not do it because I think I'm the only person in the world who can do it, because somebody else could probably do it, whatever it is. And I shouldn't do it because it makes me look good or because it makes me look busy, which in our culture is the same as looking good. Looking busy equals looking good in Silicon Valley and most of America. I should do it because I sense God's call to do it. And I hear Jesus' voice saying, go and bear fruit and do my work and love each other. And I should do it because I am his friend. And my friendship with him grows by being with him, but also by doing things with him. And he's let me in on his plan. And he shows me what those plans for the world are, and he invites me in as a partner with them and says, this is where I want you to work. And as a partner, I would say, yes, that makes perfect sense. That makes sense. If it doesn't make sense, we need to ask ourselves, should I be doing it? Maybe I should be being at this point in my life. Looking all this through, it seems to me that there may be something that we all need to give to God. Overwork and laziness are actually the same thing. They're actually two sides of the same idolatry. And that idolatry is this, is that I could spend or withhold all of my energy based on my own thoughts and feelings and wishes without any regard to God's direction in my life and without context of his lordship and friendship to me. That's idolatry. Jesus is calling us to put that idolatry aside. He's calling us into friendship with him. He's calling us into that center place of balance where we go and do and be in the right proportions because it grows out of that relationship with him. I'm going to ask that some or all of you or as many of you as need to come forward at the end of the service. We'll have a few deacons up here to, to hear, hear you and pray with you. If you want to receive a prayer because you want to accept God's offer of friendship in Jesus Christ, we will pray with you. If you want to pray to accept God's offer of friendship in Jesus Christ, we will pray with you up here. That's one thing. But also please come up if you feel like your life is out of balance between being and doing. And you want prayer from the deacons to bring your life back into balance, that God will give you that friendship and help you find all the balance. So again, at the end of the service, come forward to accept God's offer of friendship in Jesus Christ, or come forward for a prayer to have balance in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your word, for your dual command, for your love for us as equal and unequal through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you that you do not call us servants, but you call us friends. Amen.